Hello, friends, and welcome back for part two of my conversation with Eric Hurst. In part two, we talked about how training changes as we age, and specifically, we dug into the differences between Eric's training and his sons, Cameron and Jonathan, and how they train. We talked about how to get your kids interested in climbing if you are a parent without overdoing it and burning them out. And we talked about why Cameron and Jonathan spent half the year playing football as kids. We also talked about how to train pinch strength and sloper strength. And finally, we talked about Eric's company, Fizzy Vantage. We talked about some of his products, and we did a deep dive into the importance of collagen for building stronger fingers. We talked about who should be supplementing and when it is appropriate to supplement. And we talked about why the timing of your collagen might be important for getting the most benefit out of it. And he is offering you guys a discount if you want to try any of his products. And I'll talk more about that at the end of the episode. So without further ado, please enjoy part two with Eric Hurst. Well, I want to pivot to the other major topic that I that I mentioned at the start of the conversation that I want to focus on with you. You've mentioned your sons a number of times, and you just talked about you know training with them at home. I would love to hear what are some of the key differences between their training and your training. Um, you know, you already talked about some of the differences between a beginner getting into climbing and, and progressing at climbing versus a more experienced athlete. But it sounds like you follow more or less a similar structure of training as your sons. What are some of the key differences in your approach, either in volume or certain exercises or, mm -hmm. yeah, w what are some of the key differences there? Well, as things stand right now, and again, my sons are grown adults, 18 and 20, and they're both super talented climbers. Uh, you know, they've been climbing since they could walk. Um, their training and mine is actually remarkably similar, despite the fact I'm 57. And, you know, on the forefront of my mind every day is don't get injured because I'm, I'm one injury away from being out of the game. Um, I mean, any climber is one injury away from being out of the game, but the injury risk definitely, uh, you know, is grows with age, especially in doing really powerful, stressful movements, you know, like hard bouldering and things like that. So, but in terms of our program that we execute here in our home gym, remarkably similar. The, the difference is the load. You know, they're stronger than me. They have higher testosterone levels and uh, they're just younger. They recover faster. And so they, they do a higher volume of training than I do, uh, you know, longer sessions than I do. Uh, they, when they're doing strength and power oriented exercises, they're using more resistance. You know, like I said, Cameron can do, you know, one arm pull-ups with a dumbbell in his hand. Um, I can barely do one, one arm pull-up at body weight. And at that point, you know, that there's not much training value. It's just a party trick if you can only do one of them. Um, so I don't even really train one-arm pull-ups. I do weighted two-arm pull-ups, hmm. whereas, you know, Cameron does weighted one-arm pull-ups. Uh, <laughs> you know, but we're, we're, we're doing the same workout. We're doing, hmm. you, know, you know, five repetitions with a high load. It's just his load is a lot higher than mine. Uh, our hangboard training program is basically the same. You know, we do a, a max strength program, where we do the 753 protocol, 
which is my max strength protocol, my preferred protocol as outlined in uh, the training for climbing book. Um, we both do that, but, uh, you know, I use less weight than they use. Uh, they do one arm hangboard training. I do two arm hangboard training. Uh, again, so it's a different technique because of our strength differences, but the program is basically the same. They do more limit bouldering than I do. I, uh, you know, I enjoy bouldering, but uh, big dynamic shouldery boulder moves are really scary as you get older. And I mean, they can be injurious to an eight, 18 year old as well, uh, especially if you're climbing fatigued um, and, or if you have muscle imbalances. Uh, so they, that's one thing they do do a lot more of than I do is, is limit bouldering because they know to climb harder, they need to be able to do harder moves. For me, climbing harder on routes, uh, it's, you know, I'm more of an endurance climber, you know, think Red River Gorge, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, type things. Though, you know, I aspire to stay strong, you know, for years to come. So there are some differences, but the differences are more due to, you know, just them being stronger. We, our programs largely are the same. What we do for core training is largely the same. And uh, they're smart enough, you know, they, they've been educated and can, to the most part, be very self-directed. Uh, you know, Cameron's project, you know, he'll adjust his training for his near-term project. Uh, you know, Jonathan, same thing. He'll adjust his program. Uh, you know, I've both taught them to listen to their body. You know, you, figure, you feel a little bit of ache in your finger. It's not something to ignore. You, you make an adjustment to your program for a few weeks. You reduce the high-load training and you eliminate the campus training. You let the injury heal rather than get worse. Um, you know, so trying to like I am, be self-aware of, you know, what their body is telling them rather than, you know, climbers, many of us are type A's that love uh, pain, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, discomfort and pushing ourselves to the limit. Um, but, you know, there's good pain and there's bad pain. And so you have to, you know, be aware of the bad pain and listen to the messages and adjust things. Because uh, the injury is the ultimate setback you know, uh, in terms of your training and your fitness and your climbing goals. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, the, our programs are quite similar, you know, they've been training for, you know, their whole life to some degree. And I've been training for the last 30 to 40 years for some degree. So we have this tremendous training history and our, our tendons over decades have this loading history that has made them very strong and robust. And so, uh, you know, that's the, the blessing of this generation of climbers that started at age four or five and climbed through their growth spurt, you know, and into adulthood is their tendons upon reaching adulthood are way stronger uh, than an adult who gets into climbing at age 18 or age 20 or age 30, where they haven't had that specific loading on their tendons all of those years going through puberty. Because the structure of your tendons is kind of set in stone after puberty, you know, kind of the tendon core. Now there's a turnover and there can be a very gradual thickening of tendons and strengthening over years. But the framework for that is established during the youth period and the adolescent growth spurt. And so there, uh, there's a blessing for the generation that started young um, the downside is the youth athletes who burn out and, and drop out of climbing, sadly, uh, because they did, maybe it's all they did as a youth, you know, and so that's something as a coach, I was aware of as I had kid climbers and I, there's tremendous value and there's research to back it up 
that, uh, you know, youth athletes, uh, you know, it's the multi-sport approach is way better. It, you know, you get, you, know, you develop a stronger body over, uh, you know, a wide range of movement patterns, not just the same movement pattern. And, you know, it's good for, you know, socialization, you know, for psych- psychological reasons uh, and, you know, just to avoid burnout. Uh, and so, uh, many people find it interesting that my son's their other big sport was football. You know, that kind of seems like kind of seems like an odd combination, but they played football from peewee all the way through high school. And they were both, you know, uh, received uh, accolades as players, uh, you know, at the high school level and played on championship teams. So they weren't just, you know, riding the bench. They were players uh, at a high level uh, in a, sport that's incredibly different from climbing, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, so they, they were kind of had a football players, a helmet on six months of the year and did football like training. And then they did climbing and, you know, they both still climbed 514 by the age of 10 or 11, despite playing football. And I, I think it certainly held them back technically because, you know, that old 10,000 hours, you know, idea, it's been somewhat dispelled, but the fact is in a skill sport, you need to accumulate a lot of experience. And so obviously they accumulated less climbing experience by being six month a year climbers rather than 12 month. But I think the payoff will be seen or is being seen now in that they are not burned out on climbing at age 18 or 20. They love it more than ever. And they've built a body that has learned, and a brain, by the way, that has learned a lot of different movement patterns uh, and has developed strength, like crazy strength, you know, in their posterior chain, for example, because football is very posterior chain oriented, sprinting and running and hitting. Hmm. Um, And so uh, they have built a body that is uncommonly robust and balanced heading into their adult climbing pursuits and that should serve them well on the long arc. And that's something I love to always point out to people is that, you know, the sports you play in school for the most part, aren't life sports, you know, footballs, you know, your days are over at high school. Only a few go on to college or professional, but climbing is a sport you can do throughout your life uh, and uh, add richness to your life and um, have an exciting way to see the world and stay in shape. And so to burn somebody out or get them injured by overdoing it as a youth climber, I think is sad. Um, And uh, so, you know, there's always compromises. If you want your 18-year-old to stand on a podium, then you basically have to go all in on the climbing year-round thing. Or, you know, win an Olympic gold medal in ice skating or, you know, name the sport. You know, you do have to kind of go all in. But me as a lifelong climber, I had more value in seeing my sons be climbers for life as well and be able to, you know, um, continue it at a high level and um, if they choose to and, and not burn out as a kid. And so the, the more balanced approach to youth sports, I, I think there's a lot of pros to it. Yeah, that, that's really great. And I actually got a listener question about this very topic, a uh, question from Eli. Uh, but before I ask his question, I'm curious, as far as football goes, is that something, I'm curious about that six months per year. Was that something um, 
that your sons were naturally drawn to? Did you have to discourage them from climbing at all? You know, you have a wall in your house. Did did they were they tempted to climb during football season at all? Did you hold them back from that? How did you oh, balance that? Yeah, yeah. So I I can provide some clarity there. They they did do some climbing. It's not like they went six months and didn't do any climbing. Um, you know, so even during football season, you know, generally they would have games Friday night football, you know, in high school, uh, and then they would have Saturday off. And so, you know, Saturday is a day for high school football players to kind of lick their wounds, you know, after being out <laughs> having collisions. But for my kids, they would lick their wounds in the morning and then they would go uh, and do a climbing workout in the afternoon on Saturday, <laughs> or, or maybe on Sunday. Yeah. Because, you know, they understood that, you know, you just can't stop finger training or stop and they wanted to do it for fun, you know, yeah. as well, you know, just from a break from football. So there was a little bit of a, ba- a natural balance there that, uh, you know, during football season, they would climb on the, the home wall a little bit, you know, one or two days a week. They would basically, I think, one day on the wall climbing and then one day hangboard training just to maintain base strength. Mm. Uh, but otherwise, they didn't climb outdoors at all during those six months, you know, from August through, you know, winter through January, basically they wouldn't climb outside. So that's the six months away from climbing, meaning no outdoor climbing. Um, and outdoor climbing is always our goal. That's what we are passionate about. You know, they weren't youth competition climbers, really. Um, and then, you know, during climbing season, they didn't do no football. They would still, like, their coach would have once a week practice, like seven on seven passing, and they would do some sprint training, and they would do some deadlifting year round. Uh, because that's beneficial for both football and climbing, as we have discussed. Uh, and so they they did do a little bit of both year round, but there was quite, uh, you know, a, a, really these two modes that they were in for 10 years uh, and, and still were able to excel in both sports. And I think most youths are that way. If they, they can get engaged in two or three sports and perform at a pretty high level in two or three sports, uh, and do well in school as well. And, you know, uh, with planning and with parental support, obviously, is always a factor and resources are a factor. And so everybody's different, you know, but for my family, that is, you know, what they were able to do. You know, so would they have sent 515 already by now if they had been year-round climbers? Perhaps. But they might also be out of climbing by now if they had been year-round climbers. Uh, and so they're 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 doing pretty well where they're at, and they have a whole life ahead to continue to to pursue climbing if they choose to do so. Yeah, yeah, they they certainly are are doing pretty well, and they have plenty of years ahead of them to push standards here in the states, if not push standards for climbing as a whole. So I'm excited to see what what they do. Um, I'm going to ask Eli's question. We've already answered part of it, but there's a a follow up question that I think would be really interesting to hear your thoughts on. So Eli writes, how did you get your kids into climbing? Or more specifically, how did you get them to love and try hard at climbing without overpressuring? Any suggestions for the dad of a two-year-old? Any training tips for the dads among us? Yeah, well, yes. And that, I, get, I get asked that question a lot from parents uh, that have small kids or are going to start a family. Uh, and it was uh, very organic in that, um, you know, from age, you know, under the age of like four or five, the kids really don't get climbing, like the purpose of climbing to like climb on certain holds or to get to the top of a route outside. 
uh, you know, they, it's, it's more of a playful thing at age three, four, five, uh, you know, so like having a home wall, I'd be down there doing a workout and the kids would just climb around and fall off, you know, and uh, it, there was, it was just random, playful, you know, approach to climbing. Uh, and same thing when we would take them outdoor climbing when they were small, you know, say age five, uh, I'd set up a top rope and, you know, they would climb up 10 feet and then they would end up swinging on the rope and, you know, be a kid. You know, and I, and I would try to explain, well, the goal is not to hang on the rope. The goal is to climb, you know, to the top if you can. And, you know, eventually they might get to the top of the climb, but I didn't make a big deal out of it because they're a kid, you know. So that was their playful way of, you know, participating in the family climbing was to swing on the rope. Something clicks. For, for my sons, it was maybe age six. Something clicks where they kind of start to get the rules of the game. Uh, whether it's indoors to climb a route or whether it's outdoors to climb, you know, a top rope without falling. And once they understood the game, then, you know, the kids can direct that playful, you know, focused approach, just like a kid would be focused solving a puzzle on a kitchen table. They can apply that same mindset and focus to solving the puzzle on a rock wall, but it took until age six or seven for them to really get to that point. So I think the parents want to just let it happen organically by exposing the, the kid to climbing indoors and then eventually outdoors in safe settings, but not press it. And, you know, in the case of my kids, you know, by age seven, they got the, the, the purpose of climbing the game enough that they wanted to start lead climbing. And so then it was my mission as a dad to find safe outdoor routes for them to get on where the bolts are close together, uh, the falls would be safe. I, I did put a helmet on their head in those early days because, you know, learning to control your falls and your body awareness when falling is something that takes time and just risk management takes, you know, life experience. And, and a seven-year-old can't possibly do that. So I, I did have the helmets on their head in those early days. But uh, yeah, they both did their first, like, five, seven bolted leads outdoor at uh, age seven. And then the rest is history. Uh, Jonathan, <laughs> my younger son, Jonathan did his first 514A at age 10 and a half, which at the time he was the youngest person on the planet to climb that grade. Now, I think that has been broken since then, but it was a pretty awesome achievement. Uh, he was kind of chasing the heels of his older brother, you know, Cameron's two years older. And so that was an advantage for him for Jonathan was to, you know, see his brother break those barriers and then say to himself, I can do it a few months sooner. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, and so they've had this journey that has been quite long already, but all the while they had that off season where they were playing football and then they would cycle back into climbing season. And so it had a really nice, um, you know, very nice cycle for them to be involved deeply in those two sports and, you know, by the end of football season, they're kind of chomping at the bit for climbing. And then at the end of climbing season, they're kind of ready to get back with their friends and play on a football team hmm. and, and, and hit somebody or, you know, <laughs> run, a little, run a little bit. And so yeah. there was a nice cycle. But with the graduation from high school, they have ended their football careers. And now they're both student athletes in terms of climbing being their sport and, you know, um, being involved in college as well. Hmm. And are they both closer to being full-time climbers at this point? Well, Cameron uh, is. Uh, he actually took two gap years uh, after high school 
not quite knowing what he wanted to study in college, I encouraged him to, you know, he had some sponsors and uh, pulled together some resources to be able to, you know, kind of dirt bag it and, you know, alternate between training at home and being on the road. And, uh, you know, so that's been good for him to kind of be out there for two years as a pro climber and having just enough support. You know, it's tough for young climbers to get financial support for that type of stuff. Um, and uh, but uh, we made it happen for him. And now he's going to start school this fall. Um, and Jonathan, my younger son, went straight into college at Penn State last year, though it was via Zoom, like most people. Mm. Uh, so he was able to actually stay at home and train and do some climbing trips. Uh, like we were just in St. George for a month. So he was Zooming, you know, every day um, in the morning and then climbing uh, St. George uh, limestone in the afternoons. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, so it's been um, a, a different kind of setup with COVID, uh, obviously, but they're both uh, still involved in the schooling years and, uh, and, and trying to pursue climbing seriously as let's say semi-pros, because let's face it, there aren't that many pro climbers out there that are, are <laughs> right. doing it for a living. Um, there's a few lucky ones, uh, but uh, you know our sport's not quite there yet. Mm. Well, thanks for all that. That's, uh, yeah, that's really interesting to hear how, you know, their love for climbing has evolved, um, how your approach with them and how your approach for yourself has evolved. It's, yeah, it's just fascinating to hear about all yeah that. and one more thing to add is i i also in the in the spirit of diversity of experience in addition to playing other sports uh, you know dabbling even in things like skiing and golf hmm. uh, they've done a little bit of that you know also diversity in climbing you know uh, they've not done extensive trad climbing but as uh, and I would tell parents out there with kids, uh, you know, try to expose them. You know, we've done a few family trips where we climbed to the top of Devil's Tower. How cool is that for a kid, you know, to <laughs> climb Devil's Tower or to, you know, you know, do trad climbing at these different areas like the Schwangdunks or, you know. Uh, so as a climbing family, we've traveled a lot and I tried to expose them to other types of climbing, even though our focus has been sport climbing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of amazing routes out there that you can't clip bolts to the top of that you need to have some proficiency in gear climbing. And so they're still, you know, in that journey of spinning up as being able to do those types of things. But I think that's important too. Mm. You know, uh, bouldering is great. Sport climbing is great. But I think it's even greater if you can be proficient in all of those uh, avenues. Well, that brings up another listener question. This one's from Jordan Cannon, who I know you're familiar with. Yeah, yeah I love Jordan. <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, he wanted to know, I guess he's got two questions. The first one's for yourself. If you had to choose between climbing 514 or free climbing LCAP at your current age, which would you choose and why? Um, that is actually a really good question uh, because in the back of my mind, I have not closed the door on climbing 14A, which I've never done. I've not closed the door on that. And I've also not closed the door on possibly being able to do something like free rider. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think I would probably make them both long shots for me at this stage of the game. Uh, but 
as long as there's a, a glimmer of belief, which I still have, then there's still a possibility. I think that's a lesson for anybody. You know, as soon as you say that's impossible, well, then you've just sealed the deal that it is impossible. So mm. I'm not going to rule either of them out. I, I think perhaps I have a little stronger belief that I could climb a 14A at the Red River Gorge before the sun sets on my climbing career. Uh <laughs> And not to go off on a tangent, but I think it's important to say that yeah, please. Um, I, I last fall I did my hardest ever red point, a 513C. And people listening might be shocked. Like, how climbing 40 plus years, how have you only now done 513C? Well, here's here's how. As basically, as I've described in this in these podcasts, I, I've always had a job and a family and I've been, a, I'm a passionate lifelong climber, but I've always had other things in my life uh, that I commit time to. I'm a very busy person and I love it that way. And so when I go climbing, I place value in climbing, not failing. I place value on clipping chains, not hanging on bolts. And so my MO has always been to select routes that I can do quickly, whether it's on siting or doing routes in a couple of goes. Uh, and consequently, my ceiling with that approach, being locked into that approach, that ceiling, whether it was in 1987 when I did my first 513, or whether it was you know the last few years, my ceiling has always been kind of 513A, 513B with that approach. You know, quick ascents, fast ascents, yeah, second sure. go type of thing. Well, last fall, just for the hell of it, I said, Eric, why don't you project something and see, could you do something harder? And sure enough, I, I picked out a 13C at the red. I'm told it's a pretty solid one. And in four days, I knocked it off, a route called Angry Birds. Uh, and so that was kind of revolutionary to me at age 50 at that, uh, let me see, what was I? Age 56 at that time. I've got dementia here. I'm losing my age. But, <laughs> but climbing harder than ever. <laughs> I did my hardest climb at age 56. Now, could have I done that climb 10 or 20 years ago? Yeah, I could have if mm. I would have put the time in, but it wasn't my mindset. So I had kind of set myself a, a limiting constraint or I had set myself a system of you know wanting to go on a weekend trip and actually do a route rather than fail on a route you know, over and over and over. But that held me back in terms of my maximum ability. So that's kind of awakened in me this idea that, okay, could this season, maybe it's ultra perm, 13D, mm. perhaps. And if that's possible, then maybe it's, you know, trans world or God's own stone, 14A. Uh, you know, again, it's, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm stretching there. Maybe it's just an old guy dreaming, but um <laughs> No, that's it's, that's so, awesome. I mean, talk to Bill Ramsey, four days on a project yeah. is nothing. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. And now I'm not sure I have the mindset for that because I know like yeah. when Bill did when Bill did reverse polarity, I think he, it, he I think he, it was like 50 days or something crazy, <laughs> right. which is amazing. I'm not sure I have that in me. Uh, <laughs> because that would mean a lot of failing. That would mean yeah. 49 days of failing. Um, and so uh, I think I could handle. 10 or 20, <laughs> not, not sure about 50. So we'll see that that's a story yet to be written and it's fun to speculate. And so to answer Jordan's question, I'd like to think either one of those is still a possibility, but maybe the 14, eight thing is a little more likely. Hmm. So I'll let all the listeners can place bets and we'll see. I'll, I'll check, <laughs> we'll check in once a year and see if I've, I've gotten any closer. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's perfect. We'll just keep a we'll just keep a running tally of bets. <laughs> <laughs> so his follow up question, he left it really vague. So I, I, I guess <clears throat> I'll kind of fill in. But he also asked, "What about your kids uh, with five fifteen? And I guess I'll just fill in the the gap there and just ask, what would make you most excited about, you know, watching your own kids progression and watching them succeed? Would it be a 515 sport climb? Would it be a, you know, a, a hard free route, the South A free or something like that on El Cap or some other, you know, free climbing the nose? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, um, you know, my kids are both have the personality that they're not going to let their dad like set a goal for them. You know, they're, you know, in fact, they, uh, they're at that age where they do more time, not listening to my advice than listening to my advice. I mean, that just, I'm lucky they still climb with me, quite frankly, but um, you know, cause what 20 year old wants to hang around with their 57 year old dad, but yet I'm blessed to have them still want to climb with me a little bit. Um, so yeah, they have their own goals and, uh, you know, uh, I think they both w- want to reach that 515A level. I mean, I think that would be cool, you know, as a parent, uh, you know, because, you know, that is, I mean, today, you know, I was saying in the mid 80s, if you climbed 13A, that was elite. Well, today it's 15A, you know, to be really, truly elite. Um, and, uh, you know, so, it would be cool to see them reach that benchmark and I'm certain they can both do it, but it it takes a not getting injured, B not getting burned out. Um, C having the motivation and discipline and quite frankly, willingness to sacrifice because doing Mm. anything at a high level demands a lot of sacrifice, uh, in a variety of areas and ways. And so sometimes you know, achieving the next level in climbing isn't about training more or doing more of something, but it's about cutting free of things holding you back. Hmm. Um, and so I've tried to communicate that to them as well. You know, things that consume your time and focus, uh, you know, those things can be weights, invisible weights around your waist holding you back. And so um, it's a puzzle I'm happy to help them continue to solve. Uh, again, they're, they become their own men to some degree, and I have encouraged them to diversify. Um, and, uh, you know, my son, Jonathan is going to be climbing with Jordan actually in Yosemite, uh, in May for, oh, a week. that's great. And so that's going to be a great experience because Jordan's a total badass. You know, he's freed El Cap in a day, uh, golden gate. Right. And, um, mm. you know, so he, he's an elite big wall climber. And so John's going to, basically go to crack school. That's the way I would put it <laughs> with, with Jordan. Yeah. Great. He's got a great teacher. Yeah. And I told Jordan, if he wants, he can come to the red this fall and the boys will take him to sport climbing school. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, it, it, seriously, uh, they, they can both do it. Uh, you know, they have been, they have both uh, the nature, you know, the, genetically they have enough to get to 515. Um, but, and they also have had the nurture you know, you need to have both in this sport, uh, but you still need to have the will uh, and the discipline and, you know, all those, um, you know, mental or, you know, there's a psychology to performing at a high level and mm. you can't get there. You know, Alex Megos is strong and Adam Andra is disciplined and motivated and hardworking, but 
you know, you, they all have these mental, you know, you know, disposition and a, a will to make it happen. And uh, you, you need that in climbing to push things out to the limit. Hmm. Well, that's great. And, 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 and no coach and no coach, no coach or parent can give that to their kid. You know, hmm. you can't, you know, you, you can't teach your kid willpower or discipline. I mean, you can, I guess you can foster it in the early days, but at this point, either they've gained that, that trait from being around my wife and I, or they haven't, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, so again, they're, they're, they're kind of in the driver's seat now on where they go with the climbing. And, uh, Cameron's working a 15 a right now. Uh, he's working bone tomahawk and, uh, it's, you know, I guess on the verge of being 15 a or is 15 a, uh, depending who you talk to. And so, um, you know, that, that could happen in days, but who knows <laughs> it could take years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. That's how climbing, that's how climbing is. That's climbing. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I've just got a couple more questions here. We've got a bunch more listener questions that I don't think we'll get to this time around. There's some there's some deep rabbit holes. I want to ask one of them though, and then uh, and then we can wrap up. But this one I I was intrigued by, and I wanted to know the answer myself. So I'm going to ask it, and I think we can probably tackle it without going too far into the weeds. But this is a question from Gunter. Um, he said, "I would love to hear Coach Hurst's thoughts on how to improve on big holds." For a climber who climbs several grades harder on crimps than on pinches and slopers, how would he go about improving their strength and comfort on those types of holds? Really good question. And I've heard variations on that quite often. Uh, you know, some people are naturally good crimpers. You know, it's just biomechanics in a lot of cases, you know, where your tendon insertions are and how long the bones in your fingers are and just the shape of your hand and the strength even of your wrist flexors and extensors all come into play in determining your grip force uh, on the rock. When it comes to pinching specifically, it's the, the muscle that flexes this, this uh, last joint of your thumb that, you know, that flexes your, the, the thumb is, is a forearm muscle. Uh, and the only way you can train it is by doing targeted training of that joint. So, you know, doing pinch training, I think the best way to do it is standing upright and pinching weighted blocks at your side. And the thing that many climbers do wrong is they, they, when they're doing that pinch training is they go really deep with their thumb so that both pads of their thumb or the entire thumb is on the pinch block. And that's not effective pinch training. You actually have to isolate the distal, you know, the, 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 the joint of the thumb. And so you want to grab, you want to grab the, the, the thumb on the pinch block shallowly so that there's only that last pad of the thumb touching the block. And in doing that, you then target that thumb muscle rather than the muscles in your, rather than the muscles in your palm, which also needs some training, but the weak link tends to be the muscle that flexes that last joint of the thumb. And that's the, the, a muscle in your, in your forearm. So you need to commit to doing kind of just like a hangboard program, except you're doing, you're applying the protocol to pinch training using a pinch block, adding weights to keep making it progressive and doing it two or three days a week, doing several sets, two or three days per week. And you have to be very disciplined and specific and you can develop a wicked strong thumb for pinching. You also want to favor pinching wider blocks rather than narrow blocks. When you pinch really narrow things that are like an inch or two thick, um, it's, it's, it, it, it's more like crimping and it doesn't quite recruit your wrist and thumb muscles the, the way you want to for optimal results. 
So, you know, using a wider pinch, something that's four, even five inches across, a wider pinch block is more, is more optimal and beneficial, in my opinion, for training that thumb muscle. So that's something you want to commit to long term and give it a few years and you can make some huge gains on pinch strength. Um, it's not enough just to go to a gym and do one problem that has one or two pinches on it. <laughs> and, you know, you fell off of them or maybe you stuck them, but pinching once or twice isn't training any more than doing one or two pull-ups is, is effective training. It needs to be repeated and progressive and done regularly. And so that's why you need to commit to doing some targeted pinch training. Now, when it comes to sloper training, obviously when you grab a sloper, your hand is more of a, in an open hand configuration, kind of like when you three finger drag on a hangboard. Um, and so obviously the finger flexor muscles need to be trained but very often people that are proficient on slopers have better body positioning because if you can twist your hips, get your center of gravity in closer to the rock, in the case of an overhanging wall, you know, getting your center of gravity in below the vertical plane of where your fingers are touching the rock or touching the sloper, you change all the force vectors. You basically turn a sloper into a positive hold mm. by twisting your hips and getting your center of gravity in closer to the wall. So when I when somebody says they're terrible at pinching, the first thing I think to myself is, well, I need to see them climb. And are they climbing on slopers neutral? Because if you're climbing on slopers neutral, of course you're going to feel weak. But if you're climbing on slopers with back steps and drop knees and you know hip turns, things that get your center of gravity in closer to the wall than your fingers are, you change the force vectors and turn the sloper into potentially an in-cut hold. Uh, and if you watch someone like Adam Andre, he's a master at that. He mm. rarely climbs neutral, you know, even on whether it's a sloper or a positive hold, it's twist one, it's twist two. Um, and so everything's being aligned in a way to allow him to relax his grip and slow the you know, um, decrease the finger force that's necessary. It makes him stronger on the rock and it makes him have more endurance on the rock. You know, that again, speaks to the importance of climbing technique. Um, now, sometimes you have slopers on vertical walls and you can't get your hips in any closer. Uh, and so then it does come down to that finger strength, but also wrist strength, you know, doing some training of wrist flexion uh, and wrist extension is something that's overlooked in a lot of training programs because people just hangboard. Mm. or just climb. And when you're hangboarding, you know, your wrists are neutral. You're kind of, you know, uh, drooping, um, you know, uh, obviously staying engaged through your shoulders, uh, proper form, but your wrist flexors or extensors aren't doing anything special when you're hangboarding. But when you climb or grab slopers, then to different degrees, your wrist flexion or extension comes into play, uh, play depending on your grip and body orientation. Um, and so that can, you know, training those wrist flexors and extensors with like different types of curling motions, wrist curls, uh, can be helpful uh, in becoming stronger on slopers. So it's both technique and finger force, I guess you would say. Mm. Well, yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks for all that. That's that's incredibly helpful, and it makes me want to um, re-examine my pinch training. <laughs> I think I've been uh, using a three-inch block with my thumb pretty deep, as you described. So, yeah, that, that'll be something to play with. 
I did it the same way for 15 years. Hmm. And, you know, and then I finally figured out the biomechanics of it all and what the true limiting constraint was. And, and luckily, I have access to some really smart people. I've been engaged in the, the international climbing research community for the last six or eight years. And I've spoken at a couple of the international uh, symposiums on uh, climbing research. And through that, I have access to people that are way smarter than me, both uh, surgeons and uh, you know, researchers and physiologists, uh, and uh, and also get to rub elbows with great coaches like, uh, you know, from Germany, Ors and Udo and Patrick and Dickey and, um, y- you know, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I'm able to uh, be uh, exposed to a lot of tremendous information that uh, I wouldn't otherwise have, you know, mm-hmm. through the role I've played in in things, uh, you know, kind of that international community. And, and that's what I try to share with people freely uh, through my podcast, for example, or through my training for climbing website. Um, you know, I'm not really trying to monetize any of that. Uh, you know, it's me giving back to a sport that I love and wanting to help people climb better, um, have more enjoyment and stay uninjured. Well, that's great. And it's a great segue into one of my final questions here. I've just got a couple more. What are you most excited about as far as training for climbing goes right now? Is there a specific topic or, you know, a new field of study, new research, anything that's got you especially excited to to learn more about, to explore? Well, I I already mentioned the whole topic uh, relating to tendon training and how we can play an active role in the adaptations of our connective tissues that can benefit us both in terms of performance and maintaining health. Uh, So I won't, that's, that's a big one for me. And I don't think, you know, the, the book hasn't all been written on that. It's still a developing topic that how we can play a role in terms of training, rest, and nutrition. Uh, And then in terms of actual training, I mean, no doubt, although I'm not, I I don't engage in it a lot, uh, the whole system wall phenomenon uh, with, uh, you know, whether it's tension or moon or Mm. kilter or, you know, name your favorite system wall, the whole idea of having uh, set problems and a database and an app and and being able to uh, share and compete uh, with climbers around the world, you know, and to have, you know, be able to jump on a system wall and do a Matt Fultz problem or an Alex Megos problem. That's really cool. I mean, man, if I could go back to my high school days and have access to a wall with John Gill problems, (laughs) that would have blown my mind, you know, because John Gill was my idol, you know, as a high schooler getting into climbing and training. And so, for up and coming or youth climbers to be able to, you know, they're the people that they look up to, those elite climbers around the world, you know, uh, and then be able to get on system walls and, you know, test themselves. It is so cool. And, you know, and it's, it's a great training tool as well, you know, being able to do hard bouldering, um, you know, opens a lot of doors, not only on boulders, but on route climbing. Now, that being said, I think if there's one, downside to the whole system wall phenomena is that it is so engaging and so fun that I, I mean, I, I hear from climbers and talk to them and, you know, they, they describe their training program and want advice. And really their training program is go to the gym and system wall for two hours mm. and they do it three days a week. 
And that's their training program. And I'm like, well, you can get really good at system walling, but it's not going to make you like the best climber you can be. You know, obviously, you know, you can't just do one thing and it might even get you injured because it, it is kind of the same training stimulus doing these powerful movements. And, you know, you do the long system wall or bouldering sessions of any type fatigued. That's where you attempt injury. You know, it's, it's often better to end a session earlier rather than stretch it on longer, but you get engaged with your friends. One thing leads to another. And before you know it, you've been there for three hours parked under the system wall. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, I think it's a, a massive development. And I, I wish I was younger and could do uh, those those uh, those bolder problems. And, uh, you know, again, at my age, I don't want to tempt injury. And so trying to boulder V10 isn't important to me and probably wouldn't be smart for me to do much uh, in in that in that front, but um, as part of a training program and as something that's really uh, changed training for climbing for the better, I think it's huge. You mm-hmm. know, it's probably the the biggest. If you think about it, you know, in terms of training tools for climbing, the big ones, a hangboard was invented in the 1980s. The campus board was invented. You know, the first campus board board in Nuremberg, Germany, where Wolfgang Gulick trained, was in the you know, 1986, 1988 timeframe. And, you know, climbing gyms coming online through the 90s was a big thing. But the system wall, you know, I guess Moonboard was first. And now all these computerized boards that have followed with the lights and everything in the last decade, I think that's the biggest game changer mm-hmm. um, when it comes to training for climbing. And uh, But again, you can't just do that. It's got to be one piece of a larger, well-designed training program. And I think the other thing that, and, uh, you know, this is on a different topic, but I think in recent years, the role of proper nutrition has finally been voiced. Uh, You know, back in the 90s, the early sport climbing days, there was a frequent phenomenon of climbers trying to starve themselves to the higher grade. You know, the really emaciated climber, sport climber that was pursuing back then 14A, let's say, was not uncommon. If you went to Europe, sport crag, or even, you know, some of the American climbers, you know, eating disorders were a big issue. I mean, they will always be a concern in a strength to weight ratio sport. You could name any strength to weight ratio sport, and it's always a concern. But there wasn't really a, there was a sense that I need to control my body weight, but there wasn't a good sense of how I should eat to support performance and remain healthy and uninjured, or at least reduce injury risk um, and just be the best climber I can be. And there is a lot more good information on that front now in terms of uh, nutrition and, uh, you know, the value of supplements uh, and um getting enough protein, which is maybe the single most important thing for a high intensity, hardworking athlete is getting enough protein in your diet. Uh, And a lot of climbers who eat, you know, conservative diets, let's say, uh, you know, probably if they're going to come up short in an area is it's going to be protein. Mm. I think I was protein deficient for many years because I'm not a big meat eater. uh, And, uh, you know, I, I did many years ago start doing some protein supplement, and I found it quite valuable, as many athletes do. Um, but it's better to just understand nutrition better and be able to design 
uh, a program where you consume the proper foods for recovery and for injury resistance and for performance. And at a high level, there can be value in supplements and supplemental protein. And of course, I have this company, PhysiBanage, that's really been the focus of my life the last three years, where we designed the first line of nutritional products for climbers. And I don't know if you wanted to go there at all, but- um, Yeah, let's plug it. Yeah, I don't think supplements are essential for athletes. I, I think you can get all the nutrients you need through diet, but it takes a lot of nutritional planning and a lot of effort. You know, if you're on a climbing trip, how are you going to consume 80 to 100 grams of protein a day? You're not going to do it by eating cans of beans <laughs> and, veg and vegetables and fruit and right. pasta. It's not going to get you there. Uh, and so having a high quality whey protein isolate that you can drink one or two scoops of a day gets you a great dose of protein that supports muscle protein synthesis. Potentially research shows can turn muscle protein synthesis on by doing a large enough dose of, uh, of weight isolate, that can be game-changing. And it has been game-changing for climbers who have begun to incorporate that type of thing. And I, I won't get into all the potential nutrients that a climber could consider, but I will say that if you're training wrong, if you're overtraining or doing the wrong things, if you're eating a terrible diet, if, you're, if you drink a lot, if you smoke, if you're doing all these things that are bad for your body and bad for your climbing, then forget the supplements because it can't <laughs> fix what you're doing to yourself. Yeah. Uh, but the other side of the coin is if you are the person who's trying to eat right, who's trying to train correctly, who's trying to get the proper rest so they can recover from their hard workouts. If, you know, if they're an intense individual like me and perhaps you who climbing means a lot to them, then there is some value potentially in a handful of supplements that can accelerate recovery, improve injury resistance, and even enhance performance. And uh, But again, they can't fix things that you're doing wrong to yourself. So, you know, you know it's a uh, Again, I, I am very honest and upfront with people that if you're not doing most of those other things right, then save your money because a fizzy vantage supplements aren't going to fix, you know, a, a damaged program or person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that no, that's that's great. Your point's well taken, and uh, it, it's it's cool. It's it's fun to talk to you because I I do remember Drew Ruana, I think, and Matt Foltz both mentioning yeah. your products. I don't know if they mentioned them on the podcast, but they've certainly mentioned them to me. And I think they both use your protein supplements. Um, I recently learned about your. I think it's like a, a small caffeine supplement that you take right before you attempt a, a, a climb um, throughout the climbing day. Mm -hmm. Tell me about some of your other products. What are some of the things that you are excited about? Right. So what, what you mentioned is a supplement called Crush, and it's it's basically Red Bull in a tablet Okay. Uh, <laughs> in, in terms of uh, without the sugar and nasty chemicals that Red Bull has. Mm. Uh, and so it's, it's caffeine caffeine, theanine, and taurine, uh, which combined the way we have them, there's some research to show it can give you that caffeine edge or alertness without the jitters. Uh, and some people struggle with jitters from caffeine if they get too much caffeine. And uh, I'm actually not a big, I am a coffee drinker, but 
when I climb, I'm not a big caffeine consumer because I do get shaky and jitters and I just don't like the feeling of it. A lot of athletes do not. Um, and, uh, but again, some people, you know, even there's a genetic, um, variant that influences how you metabolize caffeine. And so depending whether you have that variant or not, um, you, you may have different, um, reaction to caffeine. It might be performance enhancing for one person and hurt performance for another, Hmm. but we designed the supplement for somebody that wants that little alertness going into the gym or to the crag or boulders. And, you know, they don't have a coffee with them or don't want to consume a nasty Red Bull, uh, but they can take this supplement called Crush. Uh, And so that's just one of a a half a dozen other products we have, our flagship product. I mean, uh, really, PhysiVantage, we're the company that brought the use of collagen, hydrolyzed collagen to climbing. Hmm. Uh, There's some really good research, not non-climbing research, but some impressive research done by a few professionals. professors, researchers in the United States and in Australia uh, that really tends to imply the value for athletes, especially those that are hard on their connective tissues, as we've discussed climbers are. And so consuming a large dose of uh, the collagen-specific amino acids, which are glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline, those are not found in many foods in high doses, uh, unless you eat like a lot of pork or something, you don't get a lot of those amino acids. They're almost, you know, almost missing from, you know, a vegan diet. And so uh, having a higher dose of those amino acids, especially pre-workout has been shown to support collagen synthesis and potentially the remodeling and recovery of connective tissues. So that, that potentially game-changing for climbers. And anecdotally, the customers, thousands of customers feel the difference. And so that, uh, again, if you're really serious and doing everything else right, can be beneficial. And for people like Matt Foltz and Drew Ruana, and even Daniel Woods and Jimmy Webb, I mean, name the top boulders in the United States, they're all using PhysiVantage products because they find that it does help them recover. Um, they have a sense that it, their fingers feel better, tendons and joints. Um, and even Drew thinks it helps his skin recovery, which is a limiting oh, wow. factor in hard in hard bouldering. Yeah, because skin is skin is collagen. So if you can support natural collagen turnover, um, and there's some research to support that as well, especially in older individuals, but you know potentially in younger individuals as well. So um, is it a for sure benefit? No, uh, but there's enough indicators uh, based on research and uh, anecdote from thousands of climbers, and even from surgeons who do repairs of things like ACLs and people that treat uh, tendon disorders have begun to apply the research and the findings and say that this may help you speed recovery. Mm. And, you know, for serious athletes, the just the possibility that something might help is enough to commit to it and give it a try. You know, there's many examples of that in medicine where something's not guaranteed to help, but it might help, you know, and if there's some strong possibility, then it's worth the effort. And then you mentioned we make other protein products. We do make a vegan product called PowerPlex. Um, Jonathan Segrist is our athlete, our vegan or plant-based athlete who uh, uses that, as do many others uh, like Andy Stahl, and I could go down a laundry list. Uh, and we make a very high quality whey isolate called weapons grade whey, hmm. which is what most of our athletes use for post-workout recovery and bedtime protein. Hmm. You know, the pros that you mentioned, pretty much all of them do uh, this whey protein. 
And it's you, all of our products designed from scratch with climbers in mind. So these aren't some cheap product that we slapped a label on and say they're climbing specific. And we're not a company that designed products for bikers and now are trying to sidle in on climbing and say, oh, <laughs> these products are really made for climbers. Uh, Fizzy Vantage, it was founded by me, you know, a, a lifelong climber and climbing coach. Uh, and based on the available research and every product we have has some research behind it. Uh, so we're not selling a pipe dream or snake oil, uh, though admittedly the supplement industry is rife with those types of products. You know, take this supplement and it will double your testosterone level or take this product and it will, you know, burn away your fat at no effort. You know, we've seen all of those ads and they're ubiquitous. And of course, it's all lies uh, and they're selling snake oil. Um, mm. Fizzy Vantage, I will not put out a product and put my name on a product if it's not backed by some research and a strong belief by elite athletes that it works. Um, and so it's, uh, and, and the proof is kind of in the pudding, the customer base that we've developed over the last, you know, two and a half years uh, and the number of pro climbers who have begun using our products Many of them first as paying customers and then coming on as sponsored athletes. That is kind of the proof is in the pudding. Mm. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. And uh, you know, to your points about collagen, that resonates with me. Like the way the way I think about supplements, collagen powder is actually one of the few things I supplement with in my diet. And I kind of triangulate my thinking. Like it's you know, there is some compelling research. It's really really difficult to prove out what the tangible difference is because, you know, climbing yep. and our bodies are so multifactorial, but yep. it makes sense that we would have gotten more collagen, more glycine in our diets ancestrally than we do now. For sure. And the, the final thing is that there's, there's no real downside, you know, it's not a big expenditure, uh, in the big scheme of things. And if it helps a little bit, it's worth it because there's really no risk. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. And that, that is the triangulation that all you know, every individual has to do, you know, and, and finances come into play, obviously, you know, mm. uh, because it's, you know, it does cost, you know, uh, to take um, nutritional products. But, you know, you also can spend five bucks on a pint of beer and do that, you know, repeatedly. <laughs> a lot of money, a lot of money that uh, could be redirected uh, into something a little healthier than beer. Mm -hmm. uh, but in any case, that's that's a, another uh, topic. But um I enjoy a post sun beer as much as anybody. So I'm not <laughs> saying that we all need to give up our brewski, but it's my entire Patreon model. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You have to change it. Your Patreon model is that, you know, um, $5 a month will help you get your collagen supply. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you know, but uh, in any case, uh, humor aside, I, I should add that not all hydrolyzed collagen products are the same. Mm. And uh, like all of, our Fizzy Vantage products that my company has created from scratch, we've gone to make a premium grade product that stands above the rest. And the fact is, if you go to Amazon and search hydrolyzed collagen, 90% of the product there is junk collagen. It probably came on a boat from China. Uh, there's a reason you can get a pound of it for $25. And uh, it's not a complete protein. It's missing one amino acid. So if you ask a nutritionist, they would say there's no nutritional value because it's not a complete program. It needs to be combined with other foods. 
to become a complete protein. It's very low in branched chain amino acids. It has no vitamin C. And none of those uh, negatives or missing things can be said about Fizzy Vantage supercharged collagen. Because we take our we start off with premium grade hydrolyzed collagen, which we source from a reputable manufacturer of the hydrolyzed collagen. And then we value add to it based on the research. So we add the 50 milligrams of vitamin C that Dr. Keith Barr used with his hydrolyzed collagen in his multiple studies that he did, uh, because you need vitamin C in your bloodstream to, so it's essential for collagen synthesis in the body and your body doesn't make vitamin C. So if you're someone that doesn't eat vitamin C repeatedly throughout the day, there's value in having it in your collagen. And so we have done that. We've also added branched chain amino acids because leucine is an important signaling protein for turning on protein synthesis. Well, just as muscles synthesize protein, that's what tenocytes, the active cells in our connective tissues, hmm. are synthesizing protein. It's called collagen. And so having leucine added, which hydrolyzed collagen is naturally low in leucine, but we have amped it up. And we've added a small amount of tryptophan to complete the amino acid spectrum. So Fizzy Vantage hydrolyzed collagen is markedly different from anything else on the market. Um, it costs a little more, but it's made to be most bioactive and again, to be climbing specific. And so, uh, you know, at first glance, it might look like any other protein except more expensive, but in reality, it's significantly different. And um, people find more benefit, again, using what we have developed compared to the generic products that are ubiquitous, say on amazon.com. Mm. Yeah, that that's so interesting. I, I have a quick question about collagen. I, I have this, um, I have something I've I've heard in the past about collagen, and I don't know if it was a myth or even where it came from or where I heard it. But I've heard in the past that it's better to take your collagen supplement separate from your meals um, because yeah. there's some competition there with other amino acids. It, can you speak to that? Right, and when you understand the reasoning for that, uh, the science behind it it actually makes good sense and it's really important. Dr. Keith Barr out of UC Davis was the American researcher who five or six years ago started experimenting with engineered ligaments and tendons. He actually grew ligaments and tendons in his lab. He would take the, the leftover bits of connective tissues from the knees of skiers that were blown out at Tahoe. Hmm. They would get surgery and he would collect the bits removed from their knees and he would take them into his lab and literally grow tendons and ligaments. <laughs> he would exercise them and he would feed them. And he would feed them a serum that was either just straight blood from a human being, or he would feed them a serum that was blood from a human being that had consumed vitamin C enriched hydrolyzed collagen one hour earlier. And so when you eat, when you consume the collagen on an empty stomach, you uh, it immediately you know, quickly digests because it's hydrolyzed collagen. So it's very rapidly, it's not like meat that takes a long time to digest and break down and for the amino acids to release in your bloodstream, but it hits in a spike. So the hydrolyzed collagen hits the bloodstream in a spike and the glycine and the proline form this nice upward spike in your bloodstream at 45 minutes to one hour. And so 
At that time, that is when you want to exercise your tendons and ligaments, or in his case, add it to the engineered ligaments in the, in the dish. And so he would add the, the blood from the person who consumed the collagen, and then he would add the blood to a different, you know, uh, kind of an A-B test to a sample that was just straight blood without any hydrolyzed collagen spiking in the system. And then he would see how the tenocytes would extrude collagen and multiply. And that was his first study that kind of convinced him that there was something to this consumption of hydrolyzed collagen. Getting back to the human body, though, it's all about getting that spike. The glycine and proline and hydroxyproline are the collagen-specific amino acids. They comprise two-thirds of our tendons and ligaments are made up of those amino acids. And then the other one-third is made up of the other amino acids. So those collagen-specific amino acids are what you want in your diet, and you can consume them anytime, and it's beneficial. It supports collagen synthesis in your, in your body anytime. But the beauty of consuming it on an empty stomach before you load your tendons is you get that spike in the serum, and then you load your tendons, whether it's going bouldering or doing hangboarding or doing rehab of an injury. Mm. Consuming it on an empty stomach before gives you the spike. And if you exercise during the spike, then that allows you to actually target the nutrients to the body part that you're loading. So stay with me here. I'm almost done. Um, <laughs> this is great. Your, your connective tissues are dramatically different from your muscles in that they have very little blood flow. Muscles, we get pumped because the muscles fill with blood as we exercise. Capillaries are prolific throughout our muscles. And so when you exercise and even after you exercise, the blood flow stays up and takes nutrients into your muscles, both for energy and for recovery. Connective tissues, the blood flow is poor. It's virtually absent. And connective tissues, like if you think of the tendons in your fingers, they get most of their nutrients from synovial fluid diffusion. Your connective tissues are bathed in fluid. And when you load your tissues, when you load your connective tissues, fluid moves in and out of the, the tendons and the ligaments. Kind of like when you squeeze a sponge, you squeeze a sponge and put it in a bucket of water, you squeeze the water in and out of the sponge. Hmm. So in a much less dramatic way, fluid moves in and out of your connective tissues as you load them. So going back to consuming the hydrolyzed collagen before you train, getting the spike of glycine and proline into your bloodstream, if you load, you know, exercise, the specific tendons and ligaments that you want the nutrients to go to, while you have that spike, while you have that fluid, that sponge effect, as the fluid moves in and out of your climbing connective tissues, while you have the spike in the bloodstream, and therein lies the ability to actually target nutrition to a, a body part. If you are rehabbing an ACL injury, you would consume the collagen, and then you would do your knee rehab exercises one hour later. Because the body parts that you're not exercising aren't uptaking the amino acids to the same degree as the body parts you are exercising. And so that's the proven strategy that, and that's not from me, that's from the researchers that have come up with that protocol of coupling pre-exercise nutrition with 
the, the ability to target nutrition to a body part. And you can do the same thing post-exercise with whey protein, um, except you don't need much thought to do it because post-exercise, you know that pumped feeling lingers, right? It lingers for an hour or two. Blood flow stays up in the exercised muscles for an hour or two after you train. So as long as you consume a, a meal with protein, your bloodstream will take those amino acids preferentially to the body parts that have the highest blood flow. If you're not going to eat a meal with protein immediately after your workout, well, then eat a protein shake, consume a protein shake. Because again, when the blood flow has been elevated, it diverts those nutrients preferentially to that body part. But again, with tendons and ligaments, nothing happens after the workout. All the, you know, or the majority of the nutrition is imparted on the connective tissues while you're loading the connective tissues, because that is how they are nourished. And hence the benefit of pre-training or pre-climbing nutrition. And so when we go to the crags or go to the gym or do a workout, we consume a scoop or two of hydrolyzed collagen an hour before the loading begins. And in that way, we try to apply that research to our, our climbing. And again, post-workout, consuming a protein-rich meal, or if not a meal, a protein shake would benefit you to kind of uh, help direct nutrients to the body parts you want to recover. And the evidence is that when you do these types of things day over day, week over week, month over month, it makes a massive difference in muscle recovery, if you're talking about the post-workout nutrition, or potentially in connective tissue health, if you're talking about the pre-workout use of, of you know, supercharged collagen. And uh, again, if you're doing everything else wrong, then just forget everything I said, because this won't change it. But if you're doing everything else right when it comes to training and diet and nutrition, then this added nuance can add to your recovery and potentially your training adaptations and injury resistance. And especially if you're a pro climber, why wouldn't you want to do everything you can possibly do? I mean, if you read the Daniel Woods story of doing Return of the Sleepwalker is his three-month journey to clean up his life and literally do anything he could do to open up that next grade, to put up mm. America's first V-17. And part of that was cleaning up his diet and beginning to use uh, nutritional products. It, it, you know, it happened to be fizzy damage. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's that's fascinating, and it's certainly compelling. Um, thanks for all the information. I, I'm really, <clears throat> I'm really curious to uh, dig a little deeper into the the collagen that I bought at the grocery store and, <laughs> and see if I should keep using it or just throw it in the garbage and uh, and. Oh, I mean, I, I I would still take it, but you're, you know, <laughs> it's it's the comparison between you know. Um, uh, a Fiat and a Mercedes, uh, uh, or the, yeah, yeah. You know, or you know, whatever your fate are between light beer and a, a stout ale. You know, and, uh, <laughs> if you want the real deal, it's supercharged collagen by Fizzy Vantage. If you want something that you think might help you out, but you, you're you know um, want to buy the cheapest thing and get your hands on, then it, it, it may or may not be of value. So. Mm. Well, listen, Eric, there have been some gems of wisdom in this conversation. I've certainly got a lot out of it, and it's been really fun to to talk about all this stuff with you. And I'm just amazed at at the amount of content that you produce and the amount of uh, 
you know, this juggling act that you're able to stay on top of with the books and the blog and the podcast and, and now Fizzy Vantage and everything you're doing yeah. there. Well, it's been a, it's been a life's journey, mm. you know, I mean, we talked about the dual careers that I had, but you know, the constant in my life for 45 years has been climbing. And for most of that, a passion for performance and soaking up and searching out every bit of information in any field, not letting anything, you know, miss out. Um, and we could do a whole nother conversation someday on things that I tried and have eliminated as being valuable to climbers uh, in the name of performance. It's a long laundry list that we could go down because, you know, there's new people to climbing that are, that are going through that list because they're mm. thinking creatively, which is great thinking, Oh, maybe if I do this, it will be a game changer. And, you know, so I could share a lot of wisdom on what didn't work on <laughs> wrong, wrong. I, I, I was already kind of honest and transparent about some mistakes that I made in my own training. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's been for all the great information I've discovered and shared with people, you know, there's also been some mistakes and some wrong turns uh, and some things that um, I have taken back or changed my mind on. And, uh, you know, but that's how a good scientist should be, is that the science is never settled. Mm. We've never found all that is true. We're still discovering it. Um, and I I'm happy to say that I think we're still at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to climbing technology and training, I think there's going to be a lot more discovered and re revealed in the next 10 to 20 years by uh, the next generation of uh, people, perhaps that are listening to this podcast in their teens or twenties, who are going to go into some field that relates to exercise science or climbing performance uh, people that will end up being much smarter and a much better coach than I have been because they will have grown on what previous generations done. But isn't that what climbing is all about? Mm. You know, Tommy Caldwell is built on the shoulders of Todd Skinner and Todd Skinner was built on the shoulders of Warren Harding. Mm. Um, and so in training for climbing, I kind of stand on the shoulders of John Gill um, and hopefully I'm giving support to people that are uh, up and coming now that will change the game going forward. Mm. Well, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And uh, let's plan on that conversation. I, I think that'll make one <laughs> hell of a follow-up. I would, I would love to uh, dig into that topic. I think that'd be really interesting and, and I'm sure really helpful saving people from a, a lot of, a lot of <laughs> mistakes. So um, some people I, just have to, some people just have to learn for themselves and two, yeah. of, them live in my, two of them live in my house, you know, <laughs> I think that's every single one of us to some extent. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this is, this is my uh, go-to wrap up question. I have to ask before I let you go, what is something that you've been feeling especially grateful for lately? That I'm still climbing, mm. you know, I mean, so many people, uh, for many reasons, uh, lose the love for climbing or get injured and are out of climbing. And, um, you know, I, uh, I'm just happy every year that I can get out and climb. And as much as we focus on grade, you know, climbers are so grade obsessed and, you know, I, I like to log routes on my 8A page as much as the next guy. Uh, I remind myself that it's just, it's about getting outdoors and moving over stone that makes me feel good and makes me feel alive. And so I will be doing that 
uh, as long as I'm able, even if it's five eight or whatever. Uh, I hope it's five thirteen and maybe someday five fourteen. But uh, you know, I'm a climber, uh, and so I would tell people that you know, uh, yes, it's nice to be driven and goal oriented, and, and to, you know, grade orientation comes with that pursuit, but you must step back and just enjoy climbing. And sometimes, you know, when you get bogged down on a project or you've been failing a lot at the crag, it's better just to check down two number grades and go send some routes and have some fun. Uh, and, uh, you know, just enjoy climbing for what it's all about, which is moving over stone and being out with other people that are like-minded and, uh, you know, share that spirit of climbing and, uh, you know, yeah, grade can be very important to us at times, but, uh, you know, climbing for climbing's sake is the most important thing. So I'm grateful that I'm still doing it and that I can actually still do it with my kids um, because it's, uh, you know, been a gift to my family and I hope it will gift the families of many uh, people listening to this podcast as well. Hmm. Well, that is just amazing and a great note to leave people with. I'm going to link to those podcasts of yours that we referenced early in the conversation. I'll put those in the show notes along great. with- Great. Thank you. Yeah. Along with links to your books and your blog and your Fizzy Vantage products that we've talked about. Appreciate um, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Eric, thank you so much for your time. This is really fun. And I took a lot away from this conversation. I think this is going to be a really valuable one for people. And I look forward to doing it again in the future. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Stephen. And keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Really appreciate that. Okay. Take care. Hey friends, if any of you would like to try any Fizzy Vantage products, Eric is offering listeners to this podcast 15% off your first order. You can check out his full line of products at fizzyvantage.com and use the promo code NUGGET15 at checkout. You can find a link to Fizzy Vantage right there in your podcast app, and I link to all of the specific products that we talked about, the supercharged collagen and the weapons grade whey and crush in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. I haven't had a chance to try them out myself just yet, but I have some of his products waiting for me at my folks house back in Washington. I'll be headed that way soon, and I'm planning to test out the supercharged collagen and I'm going to try taking it an hour before my hangboard workouts over the next training phase. So we'll see how it goes. Thank you all for listening to this two-part episode. I hope it was helpful. Go check out Fizzy Vantage. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next time. Like we do it.